0: While attending a party on Christmas Eve, a New York cop has to foil a terrorist plot and save his wife. Special guests Dom Monfrey and Darren from Board Games Are for Losers join us to discuss life-saving boobs, the cigarettes recommended by doctors, and the one thing that's more painful than stepping on broken glass. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfuckers. We're finding out if Die Hard stands the test of time. Test of time,
1: James and Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today?
0: James says, gladiator with the glutton, Alan says, as a father, blah blah. It's the test of time, James and
2: Alan have their say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time, James and Alan have to say. Do the movies you
1: love still hold up today?
0: Hello, everybody. Merry Christmas, and welcome to a very special episode of The Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and we have a full house here today. Joining me, of course, as always, is James Brief. Hi,
3: how are you? And, uh, you know, I'll address it. These two Jewish boys uh, wishing you a Merry Christmas, Uh that's a controversial take on this uh, podcast episode, don't you think, Al?
0: Well, we'll get into it. But first, let's welcome our guest. We have another Jew, Darren, from Board Games Are For Losers. Welcome back to the show, Darren. That's what I'm known for now, being Jewish. Um, well, uh, is that okay to say that publicly? Yeah, that's fine. And also, we have Dom Monfrey coming back on the show. Thank
2: you so much for having me back.
0: I am really, really excited that you guys are here. This is the first time... I believe we've ever had guests on a Christmas episode, and it's the first time we've ever had two guests that were both in the Five Timers Club, and this is just awesome. I'm just really glad that you guys are both here. I didn't know what we were
1: doing. You just invited me for dinner, and then you said we were doing podcasts? (laughs) All right, I'm in, and it's going to be the
0: Eight Timers or the Ten Timers Club soon, so get ready. There is nothing to get ready for, nothing happens. And while we had dinner before we started recording, Darren, you said that you didn't remember requesting coming on to talk about Die Hard? Well, not at
1: all. Uh, Famously, I never remembered what movies I've done on the podcast. I don't remember requesting this. I could see it having happened, at least the first one. I just don't remember it. So I didn't realize why I was being invited, but here I am, I'm in.
0: Okay, well, I'm glad you're here. Dom, you did remember requesting. I did request this movie, yes. And I'll give you credit because not only did you request it, but you followed up, which was smart, quite frankly, because I think we had left it as, yes, we'll have you on for a Christmas eventually, and you were like, no, no, this Christmas, (laughs) let's do it. And thank you, thank you for, for doing that and making this happen.
2: I have some things to say about this movie, so. Oh,
0: boy. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, let's address the elephant in the room, because every year on social media, it becomes a debate. I'm making air quotes. I'm using that term very loosely, but it becomes a thing of, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? It comes up. Every year, like clockwork, and you had a take on this question, Dom, so I'll I'll give you the, the microphone first and we can go around and we can all weigh in. Just as a little bit of context, the director of this movie, John McTiernan, has said that this movie is a Christmas movie, whereas Bruce Willis has said that he does not consider it to be a Christmas movie.
2: Uh, that's not true. The director has actually said, I'd never meant for this to be a Christmas movie. If people associate it with Christmas, that's okay. But it is not a Christmas movie.
0: No, you should go back and read that full quote. He said, it was never intended to be a Christmas movie, but then it became one. Right. I did not take his comments there to be him
2: saying it was a Christmas movie, saying that it has become one, not that he meant it as one, right? He literally says, I did not intend it to be a Christmas movie. Okay. So...
0: I think, in his view, it's not a Christmas movie. I don't care about his opinion. I care about the opinions of everyone in this room. Dom, what do you think? Where do you land on this? Die
2: Hard, to me, is not a Christmas movie. It takes place at Christmas. That is not the only requirement of a Christmas movie.
0: What are the other requirements of a Christmas movie? Well, typically
2: Santa or Jesus, one or the other, maybe both. Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, Some lessons about Christmas, about how it's better to give than to receive. Things like that. Okay. And I think that if you were to have a family gathering with some kids and somebody said, put on a Christmas movie, and you put Die Hard on, that
0: some people would be upset. I mean, probably some people would be upset with any movie you put on. I think it would not meet their expectations. Okay, okay.
3: I sort of agree with Dom, because I think you guys are slightly ha- having uh, different opinions on something, which is, what is the definition of a Christmas film? Does a Christmas film have to be, say, uh, Tim Allen's The Santa Claus, where you know it's obviously about Santa Claus and it takes place a- at that time, Or is it a a film that happened, like uh, Dom was mentioning, just happened to take place? And there's some references, you know, I have a machine gun, ho, 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 you know, a movie like It's a Wonderful Life, which a lot of people do associate with a Christmas film, takes place around Christmas. But, you know, I wouldn't say the central themes of the film are really about Christmas. I slightly disagree with Dom's definition. I don't think you necessarily need Santa Claus or anything supernatural. I think if it's, you know, road trip trying to get home for Christmas, that's a Christmas film. You know, it probably does involve at some point you wearing a Santa hat or something. But uh, if you define it as a film that really Christmas is the theme, then you got to go more uh, that, that Die Hard wouldn't be. I think something like Christmas Vacation... There's a large theme of the Christmas lights and a Christmas bonus. And I think, therefore, that qualifies. I don't think of this as as a Christmas film. I think of more uh, Elf and Miracle on 34th Street. You know, uh, a violent film, like Violent Night, that was definitely a Christmas film. But, um, you know, this one, no. I think it's more an uh, an action film that does take place at Christmas. Similar to the sequel, uh, Die Hard 2, colon, Die Harder. If I could
2: add one thing there, nobody calls Die Hard 2 a Christmas movie, despite it taking place at Christmas.
0: Right, That that is a valid mm. point.
2: But okay, Darren, what do you think? All right, so lack of
1: Jesus aside, here's my take <laughs> on on what makes a Christmas movie. I think it has to be central to the plot. So you could take out Christmas from Die Hard. You could make it a, any sort of holiday gathering or even a sort of celebration at the company, and the hostage takeover happens. So it's not central to the plot. Think of it this way um, I'm gonna go back to a movie that I remember reviewing on this podcast. Okay. Naked Gun, colon, uh-huh. from the files of police squad. Very good. <laughs> okay. That has baseball in it, right? Mm hmm. That is part of the plot. It is not central to the plot. It is not a baseball movie. Okay. Major League, which you also reviewed Um, on the podcast, is a baseball movie, central to the plot. So it's not a Christmas movie, that being Die Hard. However, if you like to watch it on Christmas, then it's a Christmas movie to you. I don't care, but in its heart, it really isn't.
0: Okay, so we have three votes that this is not a Christmas movie. What do you think, Al? First, what do you think is a Christmas film, and what is your verdict on uh, Die Hard? Well, I think... A Christmas movie is a movie that has Christmas built into it in some way. I don't think you need Santa or baby Jesus or grown-up Jesus or, you know, middle-aged Jesus or any, any version of Jesus in order for it to qualify. I think that Die Hard is 100% definitely an action movie and 100% definitely a Christmas movie. It's two things. Lots of things are two things. You mentioned Elf. Elf is a Christmas movie and a fish-out-of-water movie. Christmas Vacation is a Christmas movie and a slapstick comedy. A Christmas Story is a Christmas movie and a coming-of-age movie. All of these movies are Christmas movies and other kinds of movies at the same time, and every year no one says, Is Christmas Vacation a Christmas movie or a slapstick movie? Let the debate rage in the comments. Why is it only Die Hard? Why is it not Die Hard 2? I don't fucking know, but it's such a stupid, pointless question where of course it's a Christmas movie and an action movie. It contains multitudes. It has multiple genres, I just don't see why it's a conflict or a debate at all, quite frankly.
1: But there's no Jesus.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you can see Jesus in the movie. He's an extra at the holiday party at Nakatomi Plaza. That's not true. Don't come at me in the comments. Um, but, but there are themes of Christmas in the movie. First off, what's uh, Mrs. McLean or, or Gennaro, depending on the part of the movie? What's her name? Uh, With Holly. The, Holly. I mean, come on, is that a coincidence? Oh, yes, it's on. a coincidence. You're <laughs> <It was> stretching. <laughs> no, it's not. There's a whole theme about coming together as a family. Variety recently put out a list of the best Christmas movies of all time, and Die Hard was on it. Well, good for Variety.
3: But that being said, I will say this. We are doing Die Hard because it is uh, our, our holiday Christmas episode, but... We have not mentioned our little surprise for our listeners yet. This is not our first Die Hard episode, is it, Dal? Well, it is our first episode, actually. Yeah, correct, but it is not going to be our only Die Hard episode in the next coming weeks.
0: Right. So next week we are going to do a double feature of Die Hard 2 and Live Free or Die Hard. And then we will come back in the week after that to do Die Hard with the Vengeance. There's a reason for it. I will explain why we are, we are doing it that way next week. And Die Hard 5, uh, a.k.a. A Good Day to Die Hard, that was filmed in 2013, so we're not going to be reviewing that film. Question, do I have to come back for those other ones? You do. You have agreed to it, so sorry. Okay. But let's give our listeners a recap of this movie, Die Hard. It's about NYPD officer John McLean, who is visiting his estranged wife Holly in Los Angeles. It's Christmas Eve, and Holly's company is hosting their holiday party at Nakatomi Plaza. Unfortunately, a group of terrorists led by the ruthless Hans Gruber crashes the party and holds the Nakatomi employees hostage. It's then up to McLean to save the day, which he does by taking out the terrorists one by one, all while barefoot. Which makes it harder to fight terrorists, as we all know. And I would normally say, no, James, was this a big hit when it came out? But, I mean, everyone knows that this was a huge hit when it came out. You know,
3: everyone knows this was a huge hit, and it was, but I was kind of shocked at its box office take. I'd never heard of Bruce Willis when this movie came out. He was apparently a decently famous uh, TV uh, star on a decently uh, successful show, Moonlighting, Uh at the time. And then this was his whole uh, break- but um, uh, this film did come out, uh, by the way, uh, on uh, July 15th, 1988. While it did make $83 million, uh, which was a lot of money for a 1988 film, it never made it to number one. It really? Never, it made it to number two on its like ninth week in the box office. Uh, everyone saw it eventually in the theaters, but really, it was never a blockbuster weekend. Was it still in the theaters in December? last run here is october 28th uh uh, 1988
1: well i think we just settled the debate it wasn't out at christmas time so it's not a christmas movie boom done podcast over
0: Uh, they've re-released it now this december for the uh holiday season i said the podcast was over (laughs) i'm I'm sorry i will see myself out i guess um all right but so what's your relationship with the movie darren I'll, i'll pick you first I wouldn't have seen it in the theaters, okay. um,
1: but I've watched this on either HBO or throughout the years probably a dozen or more times. It's been a while since I've seen it, and one thing I didn't remember was, why wasn't he wearing shoes? I couldn't remember why he wasn't. They established that very
0: early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also remember that he was barefoot and kind of forgot about the why, but that is like... Such great scripting where it comes up in the first scene. Oh, this is what you do. You take uh, your shoes and socks off and you make uh, a fist with your toes. He does that, and then it's not until considerably later in the film where the you know the glass is shot out and he has to run across it and he's yep. picking the the glass shards out of his foot. That is set up. Very early on and paid off much, much later. You, you can kind of forget about it. Yep. Um, but Dom, what's your relationship with the movie?
2: My dad didn't take me to movies like this until I was at least 12. So this was too early for me. Okay. Uh, I did watch it probably on VHS, maybe from Blockbuster and then HBO
3: whenever after.
0: Right, 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 right. James, what about you? I wonder if
3: I saw this in the theater. Um, Maybe, but uh, I I would have watched it with my brother, older brother and sister at the time. Die Hard 2, uh, Die Harder, that that comes out, I think, in 1990. Yeah. And I had definitely seen this film several times when when that had come out. How
0: about you, Al? Uh, When did you first see this film, do you think? I don't remember exactly when, but I'm fairly confident that I saw these movies out of order and I believe that the first one I saw was Die Hard with a Vengeance. I remember specifically seeing that in the theater with my cousin Seth and I remember he was really really excited to take me, his little cousin, to go and see this movie that he really wanted to see and I remember liking it and I think it was after I saw Die Hard with a Vengeance that I then went back and saw Die Hard and Die Hard 2. So I think I was tardy to the party uh, on, on this franchise. What? No, I, you don't
1: I, like I, that? No, Alan, no, I don't like it. Oh, okay.
0: I worked with a woman who used to say that all the time. She had a British accent. It was cuter when oh, she said it. Oh, yeah. If you could do it with a British accent. Then Why don't work. you try it?
3: Yeah, try it with a British accent. Alan.
0: Tardy to the party? Uh, nope. No, 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 no <laughs> that's that, worse, was, that was worse. That's way worse. That was much, much worse somehow. Uh, you know, we were talking about the, the whole barefoot thing. It starts on a plane and you see that John McClain is carrying a gun on the plane. And then he says to the the passenger who told him the the barefoot trek, he's like, don't worry, I'm a cop. Can cops carry guns on planes now?
1: Yes, under certain circumstances. So if you're a cop, like in California, you can fly within the state of California. You're authorized to do it. If you're assigned to a federal agency, then yes, you can carry because you have credentials that allow you to carry throughout the country i don't think he was either one of those so we just kind of go
0: eh. okay i mean my son eli called out while we were watching the movie that uh in the airport people were just smoking everywhere and he's like people smoking in an airport like well yeah in the 80s sure
2: i'm surprised they weren't smoking on the plane
0: right while holding a baby Right. and the gun it's <laughs> kind of juggling everything right, right there's a special section for that? <laughs> no,
3: there wasn't, it was just the whole plane <laughs> smoking section or non-smoking section Um, are you pregnant? Uh, there's two separate sections <laughs> uh, I mean, it was wild Like you would see uh, in these 1950s uh, magazines the doctor recommended cigarettes uh, I mean, this is not the 80s people knew in the 80s that smoking was bad but you had a lot of smoking and it always really stands out What cigarette do you recommend?
0: (laughs) As a doctor? I mean, I
3: remember specifically, I bought my father a football program for when he back when he was in college. And in there, it was Winston cigarettes. It said that Winston had the lowest, quote, tar (laughs) of any uh, uh, of any
1: cigarette. Right. Could you imagine as your advertisement, we have the lowest amount of a thing that you put on asphalt?
0: (laughs) Good point. Good point. Um, Well, let's talk about the holiday party, which, by the way, is really fucked up of the Nakatomi Corporation to have their holiday party on Christmas Eve. That is not allowed. Definitely not now. I mean, maybe that happened in 88. I got to think. No.
1: I was with you. I wrote that as a note. I'm like, it was 530... On Christmas Eve, and they were starting the party. That's ridiculous.
0: That is insane. That is when you are with your family,
3: not yes. with your coworkers. Yep. It, it is so messed up that there's so many people here. There's no kids at this party. Sure. So this is a lot of adults drinking company booze. Yeah, they're doing coke. That one couple was having sex when the when the bad guys came in. Yeah, this was a raging part. And Holly, is she having an affair? You know, why is she putting her picture down? And, uh, you know, why is she going by Holly Gennaro? So what did you think about when the bad guys make their kind of
1: entry into Nakatomi Plaza?
3: This is the first time I ever noticed that the, the ambulance was with them.
1: Yeah, what I liked about it, it was, it was simple. They just go in, they kill the guards, they lock down the building, they cut off the phone service, test of time, whatever, but they, they just lock everything down and they get the hostages under control. It was
2: just simple to the point. They seemed very professional. They knew what they were doing. They just took care of it.
0: And like right away, Alan Rickman is just so charming. And I think he really nails the role of guy you love to hate. You know, again, with an accent, that always helps, right? An accent makes everything sound better. And he's just chewing the scenery and you hate him. He's a bad guy. He's the terrorist with a gun. And yet you still just kind of want to know more about this guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's just kind of, not lovable, but he's just intriguing. I mean, there's so many
3: things that some of the touches you don't need in this film, you don't need that conversation between Hans Gruber and uh, Mr. Takashi, where he's talking about the famous suits he has, and, and oh, I think Arafat has two himself, and he's talking about the miniatures. I don't think Hans Gruber was faking it. I think, honestly, Hans Gruber finds these miniatures fascinating and there's a little bit of truth to what he's saying that I could talk about men's fashion and architecture all day but unfortunately we do have other business to discuss and I like that this guy is classically educated and it's little touches that make me like this bad guy better.
1: What what I liked about Gruber was he established control so well with his initial address to the hostages where he just recited all the facts about Takagi. It just matter-of-factly And you didn't really need the overabundance of gunfire that they fired off when they first took the hostages because they shot a lot. It was like 800 rounds when they were first taking everybody hostage. But he establishes such good control right out of
0: the gate. Well, everyone was like doing coke for hours at that point. So maybe they really did need to fire (laughs) that many rounds.
1: You don't. I've never (laughs) taken a hostage. That you know of, okay? <laughs> you just don't need to fire that many shots off. This is what off the record, there? right?
0: <laughs> no, no, we are clearly talking into God. microphones. Oh God damn it! <laughs> it is very, very much on the record. You know, there's a nice little uh, another touch I
3: loved in this film. I know that the first guy that McClane kills, the uh, uh, the guy with the glasses, and I know it's the brother of the uh, you know the final bad guy at the end of the film, but there's this really funny little sibling rivalry that goes on between the two of them. The guy with the glasses is frantically trying to very, very carefully clip some wires uh, his brother is uh, chainsawing, and you can tell there's some urgency. I have no idea what's going on, but if Glasses Guy doesn't clip the wires exactly on time or before Chainsaw Guy gets through, something bad's gonna happen, or he's gonna get electrocuted or something. Big brother is teasing him. Little brother is sweating, and Big brother kind of gives him a look like yeah fuck you, little bitch." <laughs> and it's a fantastic little uh, little addition that is not needed in this film. You know, a bad guy while well, his getting ready to kill all the cops and you know, this is a scumbag subtly looks at a nestle's crunch i think that's hysterical and it's a really cute touch to this film and there's a lot of these touches that are really just little you know
0: gems on the script that was improvised uh grabbing really? candy bar. yeah 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 a lot of these bad guys weren't actors i think a lot of them were just stunt guys and some of them kind of didn't know the rules of, you know, how you're supposed to behave. And the guy just thought it would be funny of like, oh, I'll just grab a chocolate bar. And it was funny. And, you know, they, they left it in. Like, why not? The stuntmen didn't apparently know how to speak German
2: either because they famously yeah. are speaking gibberish. And the fact that they're stuntmen mm-hmm. and not just actors who
3: might have put some effort into the role is... Kind of hilarious to me. That makes sense to me. There's one plot hole I've never understood in this film. And that's uh, at the famous scene where they shoot the glass. And Hans has this great idea because he has the information that Carl and the other guys don't have. That uh, this cop guy is barefoot. So he screams at them in German. And then Carl's like, huh? I don't understand what you're saying. And he goes, shoot the glass. Why would you understand it in the second language if you don't understand it in the German?
0: No, I thought it was just because it was loud. There was just a lot of uh, gunshots going, and he didn't hear him the first time.
3: Then say it louder in German.
0: I guess, but I mean, then that's really more for the benefit of the audience. Uh, And also, it should be noted that Hans Gruber is not German. He is West German. Oh, good Just, you know, from a test of time (laughs) perspective, you know, that's a different country. So whatever. That's a very small detail. I did read, though, that the German in this movie was better than the German in Die Hard with a Vengeance, where it was apparently off the charts gibberish. Which is hilarious that they got worse at it. (laughs) (laughs) And I believe that Bruce Willis is more German than Alan Rickman, right? Because Alan Rickman is English and Bruce Willis was born in Germany, right?
2: Yes, yeah, correct. He was born in Germany. So, Deep cut.
0: Okay, right. Well, uh, West, West Germany. Germany. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, so so there you go. Um, the chemistry that those two characters have, even though they're only on screen together a few times, Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman are just great together and the hero-villain dynamic. I mean, we've seen that in a million different movies, but it really is just crystallized and perfect here. Right. This is kind of the example for the movies that follow.
2: Well, do you mean diehard movies or action movies? I think action movies in general. I think that there's a lot of fingerprints of this movie on other movies later on in in history. That is definitely true.
0: Yeah.
3: You know, something I picked up uh, on this recent watching of this film is... I love uh, Powell, Officer Powell. He's fantastic and that is a role, while there's a payoff at the very, very last scene, that character does not need to be in this film at all you know, you need somebody that he, he gets the attention of the LAPD, but the real bond that they have and that, oh, of course, Powell's uh, backstory that he, uh, that he shot a kid and he's, he has PTSD and all this and he recovers from it at the end and he's the hero. He's a great character that I just, I'm not used to seeing that in in a film like this. They
1: did a good job of not making him comic relief. They made him like an actual fleshed out character who's helping McLean. That's where the good use of the cops and then the FBI stops because the one part I really disliked about the movie is how cartoonish it became when you had Powell's lieutenant who was making all these quips and then the FBI guys come. Now, there are some good lines there, obviously, but it
0: just becomes cartoonishly bad, cartoonishly bad. I hear what you're saying, like Agent Johnson and Agent Johnson, no relation. That's funny. But the majority of the law enforcement characters in this movie, I agree with you, are cartoonish in their ineptitude, right? Like It's not just that they make a mistake or two, which, hey, you know, this is an unprecedented terrorist attack that these guys aren't used to. No, there's just a lot of sheer stupidity. I wonder if some of that, though, is because John McClane is basically the best
2: cop ever, right? Like, if you look at Sherlock Holmes, everybody else looked like an idiot compared to him because he was
3: Sherlock Holmes. John McClane is the super cop.
0: Is he? Is he a super cop in this movie?
3: Uh, You know, he might not be a super cop, but I would say that Officer Powell is equally as intelligent as uh, McClane. He sees through all of this. He's like, I think this guy's a cop. Um, You guys are doing an idiotic thing by, you know, doing step by step in the anti-terrorism handbook. And he he sees through a lot of stuff. McLean and Powell are definitely
0: the two best uh, law enforcement officers in this film. I think it's fair to say, though, that McLean isn't a super cop in this movie because he is out of his element. And, you know, there are moments of self-doubt where when the terrorists first break in, he flees. Now, that's smart. That makes sense. But you could also imagine any random person, any one of us or any cop who's like, hey, I've got a gun. I'm just going to go in and stop this. That would have been the wrong choice. But his wife is in there. Innocent people are in there. Later, after uh, Takagi is killed, he's like, I should have stopped it. Like, he's not sure exactly what to do. And I think the the fact that he makes some mistakes and the fact that he is kind of improvising as he's going is kind of what makes him a quote-unquote everyman. And that word is thrown around a lot in... Hollywood in general, and action movies specifically, and even more specifically, action movies that are trying to ape the die-hard formula, but he is just a regular cop who's figuring shit out.: Yes, absolutely. I
2: love that about this movie, especially compared to other films that we may or may not discuss, <laughs> that he is human. He walks on broken glass with, you know, no shoes, His feet get cut open, he's in pain, he's wincing. Like, you can feel the humanity there. I just mean that compared to everyone else, he's, to also foreshadow another movie, he's the only person there, and if he's not going to do it, who is? Right. He says that later on. That's what he is. That's what makes him the hero. So, compared to the other cops, he's the super cop in the situation. Not
0: that he's invulnerable or anything like that. I do very much appreciate the humanity of the character in this. Right. There was one thing I read that this movie is uh, based on a novel called Nothing Lasts Forever. Apparently in the novel, the hero is not named John McClane. I forget what his name is. But when he kills the first bad guy, instead of writing on uh, on the shirt, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. In the novel, he writes, now we have a machine gun. Mm. Which is like, you know, kind of next level smart. He's playing mind games. Now they don't know how many of them there are.
2: Did they write ho, ho, ho in the book? Because I don't think that was a Christmas book.
3: Mm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.
3: So interesting thing about the novel: the novel is actually a sequel to a film from the '60s that Frank Sinatra was a star of. Right. And so he technically was—he was contractually obliged to be offered uh, the, the role of John McClane because it was based on the, the IP he had done. He turned it down. Um, Die Hard two, three, and four are also interestingly based off of other screenplays and other things that were later fashioned into Die Hard films. Ironically, the least uh, beloved and the least uh, acclaimed film, A Good Day to Die Hard, the fifth film, is the only Die Hard film that was actually written to be a Die Hard film.
0: Yeah, so uh, clearly that formula didn't work. They were better (laughs) off adapting other things. I I did just want to go back to uh, to Powell. The story with Powell is that he shot a kid. And they say shot— And they don't say killed. It just kind of leapt out at me today and, you know, the world that we live in. I was like, I bet if they made this movie today, they would explicitly say that he shot a kid, but the kid was okay. You know, like in this movie, it is ambiguous. You don't know if he was shot and killed or shot and wounded or whatever. And nowadays they would say he didn't kill. It. Broken leg, and he was fine. And, of course, Powell was still traumatized by the event, and that's why he's not on patrol anymore, and that's fine. But they would have explicitly stated that. I, I found that part of the
1: plot unnecessary, really. Like, we don't really need to know his backstory. He's just a patrol guy. Why do we need to know that he shot a kid, and then at the end of the movie, like, eh,
2: I didn't love it wrapping back in. I mean, that storyline, like you said, did wrap back around. So I thought it was kind of like at the beginning talking to the guy about balling your feet up into fists. Just kind of a, you know, a throw forward sort of thing. So it didn't have to be that, but... I did like the way that it looped back in.
1: I just thought it was unnecessary. Like, why did he need to kill the, the last terrorist at the end? It was like the movie was over. Like, I just found it unnecessary.
3: That's all. That's actually one of my favorite things that I was really in this one. I love that the final kill shot is not the hero. In fact, mm. uh, John McClane's a sitting duck. He dives on top of Holly to protect her. And Powell saves the day. And Powell said, "I could never uh, take my gun out again." So not only is he the hero here, but uh, Powell redeems himself, and uh, even personally must redeem himself. That look, uh, you know, you never want to take out your gun if you don't have to. But this time, this was the time. Absolutely, you had to. To take it to a lighter note, Mm -hmm. one thing about Officer Powell: this man
2: ate a Twinkie on an open communication line. Is it okay if I eat a a Twinkie into this mic while we're talking? No. You wouldn't hear it, right? No. No. I I thought that was...
0: Wildly I actually have weird. one here? oh well, thank God. you so much no no, that is a very very good point no you <laughs> absolutely cannot do that and all the other cops and the whoever's running the switchboard or whatever would absolutely mm-hmm. fucking hate him there There's a Stevie Wonder joke about uh Powell when uh McLean's watching him drive and he's kind of like taking a loop in front of Nakatomi Plaza. he's like, who's driving that car Stevie Wonder. Which I mm. guess you could argue still stands the test of time. I mean, Stevie Wonder's still around. He's less popular now than he was in the 80s. I don't know. Uh, you kind of mentioned the FBI agents earlier, <laughs> Darren. I did notice that one of the Agent Johnsons is one of the Fratelli brothers from the Goonies. Mm. And there's actually another actor in this movie who is also in the Goonies. Anyone want to guess? Mama Fratelli. No, <laughs> um. you would recognize her. <laughs> I, Joey Pants isn't there, is he? No, not Joey Pants. Darren? Sloth. No, it's not Sloth. That was a terrible, terrible guess. <laughs> is he going to be one of the random like, rich guys from the
3: country club or something?
0: No, uh, it's Mrs. Walsh, who is, Ooh. you know, a moderately important character in The Goonies. Uh, she is the female anchor, the news anchor no. in this movie. Courtney spotted her. She's like, she looks familiar. She's the mom from The Goonies. And I was like, good eye, honey. That was really impressive. Um, The the whole thing with the the other news anchor who's a prick, when you're talking about Powell being unnecessary, the whole news media thing and that reporter uh, being a prick, I kind of thought that was maybe a little unnecessary. Not that it's a problem, but it just almost felt a little shoehorned.
2: I agree that it was shoehorned, but Atherton is so good at playing somebody you just want to punch in the face. How is he so good at it?
0: Right, with the other role being Ghostbusters, when he's the, the guy who basically causes the the machine to melt down. I mean, he does it through his right. direct action. <laughs> exactly. I don't need the qualifier there. Fair.
3: I agree with you completely, Al. I mean, while he is important in the plot because his investigative reporting is what leads Gruber to realize that McClane and, and Gennaro, uh, Gennaro are related, but... Um, I could have totally uh, done without him. I agree with you, Dom, that he's a great actor in that role. And if you need a guy to punch in the face, you know, get William Atherton. Uh, I I mean that complimentary to him as an (laughs) actor, I really do. But I just think that this character—it's—it's unnecessary. There's a million ways that they could have accidentally spilled the beans that uh, Genera was related to John.
1: I mean, his picture was on her desk, just turned face down. Right. Just needed to flip it up.
3: And she's—you
2: got to find it to flip it up.
3: It was right there. (laughs) That's true. And but she's talking out loud to other people about how she's related to John Mm -hmm. because at one point when Carl is like banging around and breaking the table, she goes. Oh, that's John. Only John can make someone that mad if anyone overheard it. Or some lady goes, they have John on the roof. Like, why are you telling this lady that you have John? And then, you know, all you have to do, you have to look at Hans Gruber. He'll figure out in a second. While I like that actor, I I didn't like that character. I agree with you, Al.
0: Well, I'm not saying that it's a problem. I just felt like it was maybe one thing too many and I recently watched The Dark Knight uh, with Eli and that movie has so many different things happening but there is like the media guy who's like I know that uh, Bruce Wayne is Batman and that's like a I don't even know what you would call it in that movie like an h level plot point like it, it's not very very important and I kind of forgot that it was there but I felt like in that movie it was kind of woven into everything better even though I just called it an age-level plot point, and it just kind of stuck out a little bit more in Die Hard.
3: It serves as one plot point. Uh, It's the only time in the trilogy where Bruce Wayne is the hero, and he saves that guy's life with his Lamborghini, and then the guy realizes, oh, Bruce Wayne, uh, or Batman, really is a hero, because he went out of his way to save me, and I was just about to out him. You could have taken that out, but I thought it did have a point in that trilogy. Right.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Holly. So Holly is uh, played by Bonnie Bedelia, uh, who I know best as a matriarch from Parenthood, the TV show. Don't know if any of you guys watch that. No.
3: No. I know her mostly as Mrs. Holly McLean
0: Or Gennaro. Yes, that's true. Mm
3: -hmm. Gennaro.
0: There were criticisms about her character, that she's just kind of the damsel in distress and that there is some anti-feminist messaging in here if you analyze it in a certain way that you know she leaves her husband and she's going to earn her own money no no that doesn't work and she needs to be rescued by her husband and assume her married name and it kind of makes sense to
2: me like i get that there's a lot of themes of the late 80s in this film like that also the nakatomi plaza that would never have been the japanese 10
0: years earlier Right, 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 right. But it kind of plays into that, that fear from the 80s of, oh, no, the Japanese are taking over. They own
3: business. 10% of Manhattan.
0: Right, exactly.
3: I think that Holly is one of the strongest characters in this film. You have some douche like Ellis, who's like, listen, babe, I handle uh, the million dollar murders. I could take these assholes. You sit down and i will I'll, I'll talk about this with the boys. Takagi couldn't handle anything, Uh, he didn't save anyone, but what does Holly do? She goes and goes, hey, assholes, we got a pregnant woman here, like, can you help her out? They've killed people right in front of her, they can kill her, right, just for doing that. And they're in her office, don't distract them at all. She tells them, you better get them into the bathrooms, I I mean, she negotiates with Gruber, and Gruber actually, like, uh, we're not going to let her sit in an office, but how about we bring that couch out to her? Is that okay? And she goes, that's adequate. I thought that was very powerful, powerful of her and incredibly brave of that character to actually not just sit down and
0: shut up.
2: Right. She took charge.
3: She really did put her neck out.
0: Right. And because she was like number two in the company behind Takagi. So then after he was killed, then she was the next highest ranking person there.
1: Gruber asks her, like, well, what idiot put you in charge? He's
3: like, you, when you kill Takagi. And she tries to protect her boss, too, when Hans Gruber, who seemingly does not have a picture of Mr. Takagi, as he's walking around, you know, kind of eyeing all the Japanese men that they might be, uh, this guy is looking for, she holds his hand, like, not as in, like, I'm here for you. She's like, no, oh, shut don't. up, don't say anything. But uh, I-, I disagree with that. I do not think in this film, at least, she is a damsel in distress in any way. That's not to say that there's not some misogyny
2: in the film, like nudie posters up in the work areas. That is something I remember from going to work with my dad in the
0: 80s. Yeah. That is something that would never fly now. Sure, that would be an HR complaint, definitely. Though that poster does serve a plot point where... McLean uses that to kind of get his bearings where you know he goes to whatever floor number it is and then he leaves and then he comes back and he kind of like taps it as like okay yeah i remember i saw that when i was going this way because yeah this is the first time he's ever been in this building let alone on some of these floors and there's construction and how the fuck is he supposed to know where he is and that nudie poster does kind of serve as a helpful marker basically Yeah, it needed to be there. (laughs) Right, right, right. It It couldn't be anything else. Nope,
1: no cat poster, no nothing. It had to be Nudie. Right, no, those those were life-saving boobs. (laughs) Hang in there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think we need to talk about what the heist is. They're basically trying to get into this vault. It has, what, seven layers of security? security. Yeah. Um, What their heist is is fairly straightforward. They're trying to break into a vault. What I like is Gruber makes it clear that He's leading the FBI off by saying, hey, I want you to release these 12 terrorists around the world just to buy time. Right. Um, but what it comes down to is this is a simple heist. The only thing I didn't like about it was that the seventh layer of security on the safe, it had to be that they had to shut off the power. Right. Everything else in the plot was under their control. They had the hacker who was able to get through the first six layers And then they had to rely on the FBI following their playbook for terrorist attacks, which worked, but it was a chance. So that's the only thing I didn't like. They were leaving that up to
3: chance. The other problem with that is uh, they cut off the power and the two Agent Johnsons are laughing They're like, oh, these guys are probably shitting in their pants right now. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the lights go on instantly. They should know anyone could have told them this building has backup power how do you have 650 million dollars in bearer bonds and you have such brilliant security there's no battery backup to this thing. I feel like there could have been some word they could have said that they overrode the backup. Maybe uh, as uh, Carl was uh, chainsawing through some pipes, he could have said, oh, we just chainsawed through the backup, but we're still not going to be able to get it, uh, the central on until they cut it from the main city. That's just something that that bothered me. I I thought of that the
1: only explanation is that you would have to have gotten through the six layers first, that the seventh layer was, yeah, this fail-safe. So they didn't need it to have a backup because you... How is anybody going to get through the first six layers?
3: That's the only thing I could think of. I guess, but it, by definition, the seventh one was an electromagnet. And it's plugged into the outlet in the wall, essentially. It just seems like. You don't you know, uh, sever that connection. It seems like a plot hole that if I was building a, a safe for, to protect uh, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars, I, I would uh, have that backup. But that, you're not. I'm not. <laughs> that being said, another little subtle uh, touch I loved in this film, I never noticed till this time. I always focused on the $650 million in bearer bonds. Did you notice that the Takashi corporation put like Japanese uh, cultural artifacts in there? And I thought that was amazing. You know, Maybe there's some Picassos in there too or something.
0: Yeah, there's artwork
3: in there.
1: What do you guys think of the scene where John confronts Hans and Hans quickly like that changes into the other character? I thought that was brilliant.
2: I think Hans needs to work on his American accent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fair
0: point. I mean, I thought it was pretty good. A couple weeks ago we were talking about Big Fish and how Ewan McGregor does a bad American Southern accent in that movie. And this scene in Die Hard was kind of a, a late addition It was only because McTiernan or someone heard Alan Rickman doing his American accent and was like, oh, that's pretty good. We should work that in. They were trying to look for a way for uh, McLean and Gruber to kind of meet before the climax. And I believe they actually had to then reshoot the scene where Gruber kills Takagi and make it so that McLean doesn't see Gruber. He can't, right? He can't know what he looks like. And I think the first time they shot it, he did see him, and then they had to go back and reshoot it where he's behind the table or whatever, so he doesn't see him.
2: You know, that's actually really funny. I
0: hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I mean, right, like, kind of to your point, James, of, like, all of the, the little details that maybe aren't important, but then turn out to be important or just, you know, building this world, it does play a role. I did notice it's it's not
3: the best American accent, I wonder if Alan Rickman, being such a great actor, if he was kind of purposely doing not a great American accent so that John McClane's going to figure this out. That's not a great American accent. I'm going to give this guy the
0: fake uh, gunload of blanks. Well, I think that's not why McClane figures it out. Why he, does he figure it out? My guess would be just cop intuition. There's just something off about the guy apparently there was uh, an earlier version in the script where it was all about the watch. He notices that all of the bad guys have a certain brand of watches. Mm. He like kind of observes that. And then he sees that, uh, that Gruber has that kind of watch. And then that was too subtle of a thing. So they kind of uh, got rid of that, which is fine. I mean, you know, you have to really be paying attention, but um, yeah, I think he just kind of senses that there's something off and By handing him an unloaded gun, that's his way of testing the the theory. And if it turns out that he doesn't try to shoot him in the back, okay, then great. He's a real hostage. Let's talk about the final showdown between Gruber and McLean. This is epic. This is the stuff of legend. They come face to face and McLean has the gun taped to his back. He surrenders, but not really. That shot of Gruber falling to his death is just so iconic and perfect and also apparently really hard to do that they had to to film it in multiple different takes with multiple cameras and because he kept falling out of focus because, you know, even in a controlled stunt fall, gravity is gravity. And there's only like a I think it was like a second and a half where he's in focus, which is kind of why they do it in slow-mo and why they have to cut away so quickly. It's also just kind of funny that with all of the explosions and pyrotechnics and everything in this movie, that the guy falling was like one of the more complicated shots. But it's just, it's perfect. I think that that shot
2: was just excellent. The way that they spread it out like that really made you feel like he was falling for a long time. It was simple in the fact that it didn't require
1: giant explosions and big shootouts. It was the trickery. It was McLean outwitting Gruber. This was what this was. It was a battle of wits between the two. It wasn't necessarily the stronger person won. He outwitted him by taping the gun to his back, which I don't think is really allowed and not a good strategy, but it worked. So that's why I liked it too. It's not allowed to have the gun taped to your back? I don't think proper police protocol is to tape a gun to your back. I could be wrong. I don't know.
0: I mean, I'm not saying this from any, any personal experience whatsoever, but it's a good thing that he didn't have any back hair. Because, you know, otherwise pulling that cut off would have been a very, very different experience. And you think stepping on broken glass is painful. I suggest we try this. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know where to
3: start. Did you notice that uh, when uh, Gruber's holding on to Holly's hand, what she's really holding on to? Do you guys notice what that is? Mm-mm. It's yeah. the watch that
0: Ellis gave her. So if it wasn't for Ellis, he probably would have slipped right off of her. No, I thought it was from Takagi or the company. And so the watch is a symbol of her job and her... Success. Cor- right, her corporate life. and her leaving only- her family behind. Exactly. When When they break the watch, that is a symbol of her being reunited with her husband. He <laughs> literally saves her by taking off
2: the symbol of her success. No, 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 you don't need this. You're a family woman again. Exactly, exactly. You had mentioned all of the explosions. I forgot that... For a solid four minutes, everything explodes. The tank is exploding the the front wall. I forgot that the roof explodes. Oh, yeah. Right? Everything is just exploding left and right here. The fourth floor
1: explodes. Yeah. The exploding roof was kind of a plot point. Gruber's plan was to blow up the roof, make it look like they died. Um, Because he said, no one's going to be looking for a dead person that stole that much money. They're only going to be looking for a live person.
2: I, I got why they did it. And I actually thought it was smart for them to do that plot point to force them
3: back down. They were missing some dead bodies though. I thought uh, we reviewed uh, a film uh, Swordfish uh, and there's a character that does a similar thing. The helicopter blows up and they find the supposedly find the uh, the antagonist's body in there because he had put a dummy body that looks like him, a dead body in that helicopter. You know, this is not an atomic bomb. It's it's C4 like they're going to recover all the bodies. They're going to find all the hostages, every single person missing from that Christmas party. And they're not going to find a single East German, uh, West German person. They're not going to find any of these people. I thought that you know maybe in the, in the uh, beginning there would have been some bodies that they would have loaded into the roof or something.
1: I, I think it was a plan just to slow the FBI and the police down. It's going to take time, right? If you have a helicopter explosion or a roof explosion and there's 30 hostages there... It's going to take time to identify those bodies. Hopefully, that gives them a day or two. Not hopefully. I don't want Gruber to escape. Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) But it gives
3: them enough time to get away. You're right. Because even if they did put some bodies in, eventually, they'll do, quote, unquote, dental records. Because I don't know if they had DNA back then. But uh, you're right. They probably would have figured out in time. It's three-quarters of a billion dollars. They're going to do some forensics. That guy is East German, not West German. (laughs) Right. You can tell that from the teeth? Yes. (laughs) <laughs>
2: mm. eh,
0: probably
3: if there's fillings you probably could tell East uh, Germany from West Germany
0: <laughs> okay well Dom since you remembered requesting this movie I'll let you go first and then Darren you can go first <laughs> next time uh, but Dom do you think that Die Hard stands the test of time I forgot how tense this
2: movie was it really isn't just an action movie there's a lot of, a lot of tension and a lot of cat and mouse I really thought it was great. I watched this with Gemma's boyfriend, Saad. This was his first time watching it. He was like, I'm on the edge of my seat right now. I'm like, it's a really good movie. But all that said, as much as it does stand the test of time, I will say it is not a Christmas
0: movie. (laughs) Just in case that was unclear. That wasn't what I asked you now. I asked you that earlier. (laughs) You made your opinion known. Okay, so you're saying it does stand the test of time. I did say it stood the test of time. Okay, Darren, what do you think? Um,
1: So here's the things I liked about it, or I think stand the test of time. I think the terrorist plot, the heist, is tight. It makes sense. It doesn't require a lot of leaps of faith. Um, It doesn't require a lot of outside influence, other than the the power being shut off. And other than the flaw you pointed out, James, I think it's relatively easy and simple to understand. Uh, The Against All Odds hero... McLean is great as that um he's not like the rock. Like he's not like this overly pumped up action figure. He uses wit, he uses his strength, but he uses his intellect as a cop to to defeat him. And then of course Alan Rickman, obviously as Hans Gruber, that's the best part of the movie. There's no no doubt about it. The things I didn't like, again, I already talked about this, the the buffoonery of the cops. The only saving grace about the FBI jokes is they did the Agent Johnson or the other Agent Johnson not related. Did you catch later in the movie where Agent Johnson radios in? He's like, hey, um, I need that helicopter. He's like, no, this is the other Agent Johnson. That gave me a little bit of payoff, but I didn't like when they're like, "Well, we're going to attack the roof. Well, how many hostages do you think we're going to lose? Uh, about 25%. I can live with that. No, that's so bad. I hated all of that. Um, the amount of bullets that were shot – and that McLean could reload simply at infinum doesn't make any sense. But all that said, those are minor things. This movie definitely stands the test of time. I really enjoyed it. Um, Hans Gruber, John McLean, they they crushed it.
3: All right. Two for two. Al, what do you think?
0: 1988 Die Hard. Let's go. Of course, this movie stands the test of time. And not that long ago, I forget what the episode was or the context, James. You pointed out that I mention this one book a lot on the podcast. It's a book about screenwriting. And I'm going to prove you right. I actually brought the book with me here tonight. It's called Writing Movies for Fun and Profit. And the fun and is crossed out. I brought it here tonight because of this one section that I remembered when I first read this book. It's on page 182. No, 162. Uh, It's like, you know, about how to write a script and it says, watch Die Hard many times. And it's just a a quick list of reasons why Die Hard is a great script. I'm just going to read a a brief excerpt. I'll I'll be quick about it. I promise. The hero, John McClane, has one flaw. He takes being a cop so seriously, it's gotten in the way of his marriage. Pretty damn good flaw for your action movies hero. He has a slightly goofy good buddy to talk to. Two of them, actually, who, in the end, are the smartest guys around. The villain is just as smart and likable as the hero. The villain has a, quote, sidekick who's much more evil and hateable than he is. The hero and the villain each have tons of likable cohorts and supporting characters. And it goes on a little bit more than that. But it really sums up what's so great about this movie. And I think that in the course of this podcast, we've watched a lot of action movies... And a lot of them don't work for me. And this one really fucking works for me. And it's because of all of these important small details, these important elements. You have an everyman hero who's really an everyman. He gets the shit kicked out of him. You love him. You love the villain, but you hate the sidekick. And you know, you just want to see him die. You hate Carl. Carl's the worst. Everyone hates Carl. It gets so many things right that. Of course this is one of the best action movies of all time. Of course it's one of the best Christmas movies of all time. It it deserves to be on both lists. It is endlessly entertaining. Of course it stands the test of time. But James, what do you think? Do you think that Die Hard stands the test of time? You know, if it wasn't for some of these subtle touches
3: that that I talked about, and the casting of Alan Rickman uh, and uh, Bruce Willis, this film could have actually been more generic than I thought. Uh, but this film just works so well, because it's a well-made film. There's a part where uh, John McClane's walking by, and there's this weird circle that comes on the film. Uh, of course, it's it's a lens flare. You guys know the scene I'm talking about. It's a real famous lens flare in Die Hard, and you know, some filmmakers use it all too much. Some people use it uh, subtly, but I thought that was fascinating because i knew this was an artifact of uh uh filmmaking and once in a while when there's a horror movie and there's a blood splot on the uh, on the lens of the camera i find that stuff fascinating it really really is a little exciting to me when it's a little bit of a fourth wall break to remind you you're in a film and uh small stuff like that i really like it i agree with you darren that uh some of the humor around the, the the cops uh the fbi is is really silly i mean the whole roof just blew up. You have no idea how many people are there. Two federal agents are dead and uh, and uh, a pilot. And what does Lieutenant uh, Dwayne Robbins say? He says, a funny line. <laughs> but, I, I mean, are you fucking kidding me? He says, I guess we're going to need a few more FBI guys. Like, holy shit. <laughs> like, yep. they're pieces of meat. Uh, I mean, I thought that was really weird. But this film is just so... All these years later, this film totally stands the test of time. It really redefined
0: the genre of action movies for the 80s. Right, because before that, there were like the, the 70s disaster movies. And then in the 80s, you had... Rambo. Right, you had Predator. Stallone and Schwarzenegger doing the, the big, beefy... you know, and Trons. Rrr, Right, and, and this movie, you had a guy who uh, who is tiny compared to Stallone and Schwarzenegger. He's a schlub. I right. mean, he's in better
2: shape than I am, so this is no shade. Just saying that, like, compared to the contemporaries, he's a guy that walked off of a sitcom and into this movie.
3: Right. I think that uh, you might be onto something, that uh, John McClane might be the first guy that was not a muscle or at least in my life, that was not a
0: muscle-bound action hero. And it was also a big deal at the time that he was a TV star that was going to headline a major blockbuster movie. Now that line is basically gone, where movie stars do TV and TV stars do movies, but... In the 80s, it was like, uh, that's a big risk to put this guy who's only known for TV in a movie. Bruce Willis wasn't on some of those movie posters. He did not have the credentials at all for this. Right, right. And he and he made $5 million, which was a huge salary for a quote-unquote unknown because he was only on TV. So that kind of made him an unknown. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a career-defining role for Bruce Willis. Absolutely. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we are going to come back to talk about the even movies in the uh, Die Hard series. Even in terms of numbers, I mean. Die Hard 2 and Live Free or Die Hard. Dom, Darren, you're coming back, right? Absolutely. Yes, yes. Good enough. Until then, we want to hear what you guys think about Die Hard being a Christmas movie. There's got to be some listeners who are going to take my side. Write to us at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, X, Instagram, and Threads. Merry Christmas, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.